Today is the beginning of prayer week. And over the next seven days, right across this country, churches of all denominations, including this one, will be uniting and joining with the Church of England's call to prayer for this nation. It's led by the archbishops of Canterbury and York. We are being called to pray for God's power and presence to fall, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's incredibly exciting. I can't think of a time like this when the church has stood a shoulder to shoulder with such a united voice to pray for God's kingdom to come. And as a church, we're going to lay hold of it with all that we have as we gather together and cry out to the Lord in prayer, expectant of all that the Lord is going to do through this week of corporate and national prayer. And in essence, what we're praying for is revival. Revival is the ongoing presence of the Lord of God in a particular place. We're praying for the ongoing presence of God to fall right across our nation, that lives would be transformed, and the, say, and the name of Jesus will be lifted high. And the presence of God is something that I'm sure we've all known in particular places and at particular times. But in revival, that presence comes in a particularly powerful way, in a place that impacts not only those in the church, but those in the surrounding communities as well. And that's what we're praying for. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah 1. If you remember, in the, book, in the end of the book of Nehemiah, when the exiles have returned to Jerusalem and the walls have been restored, Ezra the priest and other Levites come forward and they read out the Torah to the people who have forgotten the word of God. And what happens is the presence of God comes in a mighty way and there is a sustained revival in that place across the whole community. And yet, it all begins right back at the beginning of Nehemiah with just one man. It all begins with one man praying. Let's take a look. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakala, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I, was caught, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. And without going any further, I'm just going to pray quickly. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, breathe upon us. Breathe upon this nation. How exciting that here I stand today and up and down the country, people are talking and gathering about you and praying for you. Lord, let the church's doors fling wide open. And let your kingdom come. Amen. Oh, just need more water. <laughs> What's the connection between prayer and revival? Revival is always a sovereign work of God. We can't create it. We can't engineer it. It's a mighty work of God. And yet it would seem that God acts in this way when people are praying. Revival comes when people are praying. There's something that's going on in prayer that God honors through revival. So what we can learn from this passage, as we join with churches up and down this nation, praying for the evangelization of this nation, and the reviving presence of God to come in power. Back in 1939, on the Isle of Lewis, there was an incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit that became known as the Lewis Revival. And a woman in her 90s wrote of her experience. She said, a minister who visited there, Duncan Campbell, stated that, that, stated that at that time, that the very fields were hallowed. The sea was hallowed. Wherever people were, they prayed, and the place of solitude was precious to them. Out on the moor, caring for the cattle, they prayed, and prayer was not a burden to them, but a delight. They loved to pray. They were constrained to pray. I love this description of God's presence in the fields, not just in the church, not just in the temple, but everywhere. And there were amazing accounts of farmers just falling down in the fields in the middle of their work to pray and call out to the Lord that their lives would be transformed. And so it is for us. We have encountered Jesus for ourselves, who has been so transformative in our own lives. Wouldn't we want that experience of transformation, that love of God extended to all people around us? It's our heart 
that everyone would experience that wonderful encounter with Jesus for themselves. And revival seems to be one of the powerful ways that this happens. But sometimes, when we look at what's going on around us, when we look at what's going on in our culture and in the world in which we live, it seems like almost it's impossible challenge. But when you look at the history of revivals, history tells us that revival comes when faith seems to be dying and the culture seems to be strong and pervasive in its hold over people. Psalm 85 says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And revival seems to happen when everything else seems like it's almost at the point of death. Ernest Baker said, The revivals of Christianity have occurred when the funeral of the faith has seemed nigh. Another writer puts it like this, The inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse is what revival is about. So if you feel it's not going to happen here, it's not going to happen in the South West London 2016, be encouraged. Let's be inspired by the accounts from the annals of history of our faith. Let's be inspired by what Scripture has to teach us. And I just want to look quickly at seven ways prayer is foundational in seeing revival come and then and they're all rooted in Nehemiah 1. The first one is, revival prayer require, requires a softening of the ground. There's a lot of imagery in the Bible that, that speaks of this. In Hosea 10:12, it says, Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. What are we doing when we break up the ground through prayer? In one sense, it means we break up the ground by praying for the things that we long to see. But much more importantly, even that, it, it means breaking up the ground in our own hearts. Our hearts which have grown tough and hard, perhaps. None, now, all of these principles of prayer that we're going to look at this morning, they're all countercultural. Our culture says, protect yourself. Remain invulnerable. Stay safe. But praying for revival means the opposite. When we pray for revival, we are to soften our hearts. We are to allow our hearts to be broken. And Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, O God. And that Hebrew word for contrite is rooted in the idea of being bruised or broken to pieces. Nehemiah, Nehemiah had this experience. He says in Nehemiah 1, 4, 1 verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He's so impacted by what he sees. He, his heart has been so broken. His spirit has become so tender. And he begins to pray, softening the ground of our hearts happens when we pray for revival. Secondly, revival prayer require, requires a change of heart. It's not a technique. Again, it's countercultural. We love our five-point plans to change our lives. We love to get three top tips. 
But praying for revival isn't about strategies. It's about what's going on in our hearts. You could see what was going on in Rachel's heart when she gave that announcement. Just there. She wants to see the kingdom come. And the Holy Spirit anointed her, has anointed her to do that job. But that is the calling there. Nehemiah looks at the contemporary world. He sees the state of affairs and he's cut to the quick and he sits down and weeps over what he sees. And then he mourns and fasts and prays for some days before God. Charles Finney, a great 19th century revivalist, defined prayer as the state of the heart. Prayer is the state of the heart, a state of continual desire and anxiety of mind for the salvation of the lost. A Christian who has the spirit of prayer feels anxious for souls. It all happens in our hearts. It's a state of the heart. It's not a technique. We worry about, do I pray enough? Or do I, do I pray hard enough? Or why haven't I been taught how to pray better? But actually, fundamentally, prayer is just about the heart. This is about burden. It's about allowing ourselves to be burdened by things that are going on around us. Someone who really got this was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. He wrote a most profound and challenging piece called The Vision of the Lost. And in it, Booth says he had a vision of a stormy and turbulent sea full of people who were shipwrecked and who were struggling for their lives. And some managed to climb up onto the rock and were saved. But in the turbulent seas around them, others continued to flounder. And the people on the rock became a kind of picture of the church, and the vision that he has is actually quite tough to the church because that is what he says. As I looked on, I saw the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. But only a few of them seemed to make it, to the, it their business to get the people out of the sea. Though all had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. These people did not seem to have any care, that is any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning before their eyes. And it was in order to serve this vision of reaching the lost with the message of salvation that the Salvation Army was called into existence. God's heart is for the lost. His will is that none should perish. It is those who are drowning in the sea they are his burden. And as such, they are to be ours. Our hearts need to be softened. Our hearts need to be burdened. And the third thing is, revival prayer requires integrity. We, we see this with Nehemiah, verse 4. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It is very clear that Nehemiah has complete integrity in his response. The culture in which we find ourselves says, take care of yourself. Look after you. The ends justify the means. That's the way of the world. But not when we pray for revival. Psalm 17 says, hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. 
it does not rise. Ooh. It does not rise from deceitful lips. You see, it is possible to pray for the right thing, but with the wrong motives. It is possible to pray for revival because we want to see the church grow, or because we want to feel better about our ministry, or because that's what we're supposed to do. But as we pray for revival, it's like God shines the spotlight on our motives and really just asks us, why are you praying for this? When Duncan Campbell went to the Isle of Lewis in 1949, he heard that there was a group there that had been praying since the last revival in 1939 who were really burdened. And there was a prayer meeting when a young man called Kenneth MacDonald read from Psalm 24. Psalm 24 says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. And what he did next was he closed the Bible and he said to his fellow prayers who were gathered around him, interceding on their knees and said, Brethren, I can't do the accent. It's so much humbug to be waiting thus night after night, month after month. If we ourselves are not right with God, I must ask myself, is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? Now he'd been praying for months but in that moment, he felt convicted by the Lord in a new way to ask himself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? We need to examine our hearts and our motives when we're seeking God for revival. The next thing is, revival prayer requires repentance. As we commit to praying for anything, but certainly for something like revival, God reshapes us and by his kindness leads us to repentance. Nehemiah ends up in verse 6, confessing to God the sins that I myself and my father's family have committed against God. And I don't think that's Nehemiah just covering all his bases. I think it's him really seeing himself responsible for the world he inhabits and the state that it's in. As we pray for revival, God seems to do a deeper work in us. As we align ourselves to him, we're further convicted. We will surrender more sin to God and we're restored further by his grace. And at the end of the meeting, Kenneth MacDonald had challenged himself and his fellow prayers with the question, is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? This is what the eyewitness report said happened. At that moment, the presence of God flooded that place and several of the men fainted or fell into a trance with the overwhelming awareness of the eternal. John Smith, one of the men present, said that at that moment, they all became aware that the holiness of God and revival 
were inextricably linked. The presence of God came. And when he came, it was in revelation of his holiness. Corporate revival comes in the wake of personal revival. And as we join with churches across the nation this week, we should be ready for the fact that God is going to change us. God is going to lead us to a place of repentance first. The fifth thing we see in Nehemiah is that the revival prayer requires passion. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. What happens when we pray for our revival is that we get God's hearts on a matter we begin to have the same passion for things that he has. We get caught up in something. Then we begin to share Christ's passion for that thing. As we share in Christ's passion, so too we share in his suffering. And there's something about praying for revival that means that as we share in God's passion for revival, it also means that we may well have to share in Christ's suffering. It's not an easy task to pray for revival. It takes our time. It takes our energy. It's going to break our hearts. It's going to highlight areas of our lives that we need to repent of. It may well be a challenge. In Ezekiel 22:30, it says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land. Something is being asked of us that involves commitment, engagement, and passion. We need to have this picture of ourselves as intercessors. They stand in the gap for others and for our city and for our nation and for those who don't yet know Jesus. We see ourselves with that mandate. Are we committing ourselves to that mandate? Revival prayer requires passion. And then revival prayer requires expectation. Praying for revival means that we're going to need to have a high level of expectation. Back in the revival in the Isle of Lewis, there was a prayer meeting going on. And it was way past midnight. And Duncan Campbell had asked a local blacksmith to pray. Now this chap had been praying already for half an hour. And he drew his prayer to a close with a bold challenge to God. He said, God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour fresh water on dry ground, and you're not doing it. And he paused for a while, and then he concluded, God, your honor is at stake, and I challenge you to keep your covenant engagements. Then Duncan Campbell and many others recall at that moment the place where they were meeting, which was a large granite house, was shaken to its very foundations. Some of them thought it was an earth tremor, and Campbell was reminded of Acts 4.3.1, where it says, after they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. But basically, he then drew the meeting to a close. He gave the blessing, and they went outside. It was 2 a.m. And they found, quote, the whole village alive, ablaze with God, 
Men and women were carrying chairs and asking if there was a room in the church then. Isn't that wonderful? We know we have a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his promises. He says he will revive, renew, and will bring revival. So we can be reassured. Let's pray this week with that kind of expectation. And finally, revival prayer requires perseverance. Nehemiah 1.6 Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love and those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. We are not naturally predisposed perseverance, with perseverance. We're pretty much used to getting what we want and getting it when we want it. We tend to be a massively impatient people. We like things to happen, usually immediately. It's easy for us to get like that in our prayer lives. I'm going to pray today. If it happens, great. And if not, I'll pray for something tomorrow. But Nehemiah fasts and prays for some days before we hear this particular prayer to God, which is Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. God's best things seem to be reserved, not for those who have a half-hearted approach, but to those who have a sustained desire and commitment. That seems to be how things are honored. And when we think of prayer like this, it's maybe helpful to think of it a bit like geology. You see, revival prayer is part of a longer tidal wave forming. When we're praying for revival, it may not come tomorrow. It may not come in a month. It may not come in a year. It may not come in 10 years. But actually, there's a longer tidal wave forming that we are a part of, that we can commit to. In 1859, there was a revival in Ulster when James McQuilkin and four friends initially got together to pray. And they got together weekly to pray and study the scriptures. And gradually, their numbers swelled to around 50 or so. And their prayer was, and I quote, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon ourselves and upon the surrounding country. This is the one great object and burden of our prayers. We held right to the one thing. We did not run to anything else. And they prayed for months and months and months, and nothing happened. But they kept praying, and the same thing. And their prayer group was ridiculed for praying in this way, when clearly nothing was happening, until the power of God came. And by the end of the following year, 100,000 people, 100, people in Ulster came to faith as a result of what originated in that prayer meeting. Softening the ground, a change of heart, integrity, repentance, passion, expectation, and, perse and perseverance. This week, 
Let's join with the church across these islands. Let's to pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's will to be done. Let's join here on earth, for God's will to be done here on earth as it is on heaven. I've just got one quote. I just want to put in there. Which I feel like the Lord's saying. Bill Johnson has recently said this. We must maintain our position of trust in the character of God and in the promises of God in the middle of not having your answer or the need of breakthrough. So let's join together with the church. And in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to join together with the church across the nation and pray for these islands. But first, I want to show you another film, but put together by a most amazing team at Alpha UK of revival accounts from England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. On New Year's Eve, 1738, John Wesley and 60 of his friends gathered on Fetter Lane. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell to the ground. This entry from John Wesley's journal on the 1st of January, 1739, gives account of the habit that he and his friends were accustomed to. They gathered to pray and worship together, and it was out of these gatherings of prayer, filled with the presence of God, that they began something huge that swept across the country. John Wesley was propelled out of this prayer room to preach around the UK, often in fields when he wasn't given a pulpit, and traveled 250,000 miles on horseback to share the love that he had found. Behind him, he raised up an army of preachers who continue to this day. His brother Charles wrote 6,000 worship songs and their friend George Whitfield became the greatest preacher of his generation, on one occasion speaking to 15,000 people without a mic. All of this spurred on by a commitment to prayer. When Wesley spoke of his conversion, he talked of his heart being strangely warmed by the presence of God. Imagine if we spent time seeking after having our hearts warmed, set on fire for God, Perhaps we too might be moved to find new ways to share his love with those around us. We could see the people of this country coming back to the church, finding once again a God whose love for them can warm even the coldest of hearts. a group of young men began meeting each Friday night in a schoolhouse in the small town of Kells, here in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. They prayed for revival and asked God for a move of God in their land. After two years of prayer in 1859, revival broke out. It's said that this move of God produced more than 100,000 people coming to faith in Northern Ireland. Churches had to be built all over the place to fit everyone in. There were stories of all sorts of people experiencing the presence of God, not just in the church. 
people encountering the power of God in the street by walking past the buildings where the prayer meeting took place. Revival was in the air. There was something you could catch. A contagious love for God spread far beyond the reaches of those few men gathered to pray. Just think of what might happen as we seek God. Perhaps we too could see an outpouring of God's love that could simply be caught when walking down the street, past our homes, our schools, and even our churches. Two elderly sisters, Christine and Peggy Smith, aged 82 and 84, one blind and one crippled by severe arthritis, developed a longing for God to do something in their small parish here on the Isle of Lewis in the very northwest of Scotland. They prayed and prayed in their little cottage until eventually they became convinced that something was about to begin. One sister said to the other, I believe revival is coming to the parish. In 1949, they told their minister, James Murray McKay, to get the church praying, and they did. They met to pray three nights a week and saw visions among them of what was coming. James McKay invited a preacher called Duncan Campbell to speak at his church immediately. He refused and put a date in the diary for the following year. But the sisters knew better. They told the church that Campbell would be with them within the fortnight, and they were right. Over the next three years, thousands came to faith, and the revival spread across the whole Hebrides. All of this began with two old ladies praying. It doesn't matter who we are, how old, how young, prayer changes things. Evan Roberts, in his 20s, was studying for the ministry at Newcastle Admin when he felt called back here to his hometown Lacha in South Wales to see revival come. On the 31st of October 1904, in a small Sunday school room here in Mariah Chapel, Evan gathered with a group of his friends to pray that the Holy Spirit would move more powerfully, and revival came. Within weeks, the Spirit spread across Wales like wildfire and 100,000 people got saved during the revival. You could see signs of revival everywhere. The miners would return from the mines with black faces from the coal and white streaks running down their faces from tears of joy and repentance. Many pit ponies could no longer respond to instruction because now the miners' language had cleaned up and they no longer ill-treated them. The crime rate dropped so drastically that often judges would arrive at a town and find no one to try. People came out of their homes and would get saved on the way to work because the atmosphere was so thick with the spirit. This revival sparked revivals around the whole world and the prayer that Evan Roberts prayed throughout was Come Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ's sake. One of the songs that was sung throughout this revival we still sing today. Damagariad, here is love 
vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. What might happen if we prayed and saw visions of thousands coming to find Jesus? What if we too worshipped and prayed until we saw it happen?